Welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little about increasing soil organic matter. We get this question quite often because a lot of people are very interested in soil health, and rightfully so. And a lot of times you'll hear about, oh, it's cover crops and it's no-till and everything else, and this is going to make a healthier soil. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that makes a healthier soil in a lot of cases, not in all, but in a lot of cases, increasing soil organic matter. So how do you do that? We're going to talk about that throughout the show today. If you've got any questions about that or anything that's going on in your farm, you can give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, so to start the show today, I'll just tell you the, the five things that we will typically talk to people about when it comes to increasing soil organic matter. Number one, by far and away, reduce tillage. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you have to go no-till, but here's the big question that we often get from people. They say, all right, let's say I've got all this residue on the soil surface. If I just take and bury that with tillage, why doesn't that increase my soil's organic matter? That doesn't make sense because it looks like I've got all this organic matter on top of the ground. I throw it into the ground. Why is it not building my soil's organic matter? All right, first of all, there's a difference between organic material and organic matter. What you see in the soil surface is organic material. So in other words, residue from last year's crop, for example, if you're out there this spring. Okay, that's organic material. But it has to decompose, and then it becomes organic matter in your soil. When you do tillage, what you're doing is you're introducing lots of oxygen down into that soil. And the oxygen is basically fuel for the fire, and it burns up your soil's organic matter faster. And if you don't believe that, you can look at any study ever done in the last 100 years when there's lots of tillage, massive tillage done, organic matter levels go down. So here in the United States, starting whatever, let's call it roughly 100 years ago, 130, however long it's been, 150, when all this tillage was getting done, and that's really, quite frankly, the only way we had to kill weeds, insects, diseases, get a seed bed ready, everything else. We didn't have the nice equipment we do today or the herbicides, or the insecticides, or the fungicides. So tillage was the answer to about everything. And you could just see nationwide the organic matter levels going down in our soil. And you can check on your own farm, too. Here's one way you might want to do that. Compare the organic matter levels out in your field to the organic matter levels in your fence line. The fence line, most likely, well, like on our farm, that's virgin prairie. Never been tilled. So I'm not saying it's that way everywhere, but in fence lines, that's a lot of times where you can see what was the soil like before we started doing all this tillage out in our fields. Okay. So anyway, reducing tillage, number one. Again, you don't have to go no-till. I look at Francis Childs, for example, the first guy raising 400 bushel corn in the United States 15, 20 years ago. He used a mini moldboard plow, a mini moldboard plow, and he was still building soil organic matter. Now, granted, he had ridiculous amounts of residue there and everything, so it all depends on your situation and how much tillage you can use, but you want to reduce tillage to increase soil organic matter. The next thing I would say is raise a crop with lots of roots. 
what they found now is that a lot of the organic matter in the soil doesn't come from the above ground residue. Where it comes from is the roots decaying. So think about this. On average, for most plants, what you see for mass above ground is the mass below ground. So when you see this great big corn plant, for example, just understand there are roughly that many roots below ground. That's a lot. So if you can leave those intact and you have a crop with lots of roots, then you're going to build or be able to build soil organic matter faster. Corn, for example, at the peak has roughly five times the root mass of soybeans at the peak. Five times on average. So my point here is you can still build organic matter levels with soybeans, but you can do it faster and easier with corn. So plant a crop with lots of roots. So roots is number two. Number three, manure or compost. When you use manure or compost, it's got a lot of other things besides just fertility in there. So I, I would just say uh, manure and compost can be really good. However, the limiting factor for application of manure or compost on our farm is not nutrients. And for most people over the years, that has been the limiting factor. They say, well, how much nitrogen do I want to get on? That's how much manure I'm going to put on. How much uh, phosphorus am I legally allowed to put on? That's how much manure I'm going to put on. No, for us, we don't hit either of those two thresholds. What we hit is salt and that threshold. We're in a drier area of the United States. We have to be really careful about how much salt we put out there. Otherwise, you'll kill the soil. I was just talking to, I did a meeting up in northeast South Dakota yesterday, and there are a lot of dairies around there. And I said, yeah, this is one of the concerns that I have because we have farmers we work with who are literally killing their soils with all that salt. You've got to be careful with that. But nevertheless, if you use at least some manure or compost, that a lot of times will help you build your soil's organic matter. Next thing, cover crops. Now, you don't have to use cover crops to build soil organic matter, but here's kind of the one factor that we look at. Do you have available growing season where nothing is growing? Okay, so for example, on our farm, we will plant our corn and soybeans as the frost is coming out of the ground. We will harvest our corn and soybeans, grain at least, when we're harvesting grain, when I, like right before uh, the frost comes in the fall. So in other words, there's no extra time to raise a cover crop. You can't do it when you're raising a full season corn and soybean crop in our region. However, if let's say I was raising a short season crop, well then yeah, cover crop absolutely fits. Okay. And number five is use biological or as we call them natural products. Now I'm not going to say this is a big factor, but it is something that can certainly help. So my list Number one, reduce tillage. Number two, plant crops with lots of roots. Number three, manure or compost. Number four, cover crops. And five, biological products. We're going to hear from a few others about building soil organic matter throughout the show and what their list is coming up right after this. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies 
and not a cloud in sight. Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact eMERGE planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. Palmer Amaranth. Four counts of yield theft, resistance to groups two, four, nine. You ain't got nothing on me, man. We've been surveilling you. And now we've got Tough 5EC, a tank mix partner that'll make sure you and your gang of resistant weeds never see the daylight again. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belsham Crop Protection. To Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today, talking about organic matter in soil. Also taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Real happy to welcome Temple Rhodes to the show. He works with Extreme Ag and farms out in on the East Coast, out in Maryland. How you doing, Temple? I'm doing great. How are you guys today? You know, pretty good. We're just uh, just talking about this organic matter thing, and it, it's been a big deal for us in our farm. I've been working on this for a long time, trying to, to build some of the lower organic matter soils that uh, were already kind of medium to, some would even call them heavier soils, just didn't have much organic matter out there. And uh, it's been been a long process for us, but fortunately Brian's getting some gray hair over there, so he's been doing it for a while, and I've almost been doing it as long, well, too. <laughs> So wait, so you want to talk about low organic matter? Our our organic matter is very low. Like we're so I went back, you know, um, and I looked at our organic matter all the way back to 2009. Um, out here, we've had a cover crop program for the last 23, 24 years in the state of Maryland, where they pay us to to use cover crops. Of course, we all know that cover crops adds, you know, some organic matter. But I got some data for you. So since 2009, our, our organic matter on this particular farm was a 1.5, okay? So it's pretty low. Um, in 2018, that was all cover crop ground every year. Our organic matter was a 1.8 to a 1.9. So we didn't really gain much in eight, nine years there, right? So in 2018, we started implementing using a lot of humics and fulvics and sugars, um, and we started to utilize them a lot more. Um, so what we found is, is from 2018 um, to 2021, we went from a 1.9 to a 2.1. Same ground, nothing's really changed. Then 2021 comes around, and we start learning more about these residue breakdowns, you know, um, you know, bugs in a jug, add them with humix and some sugars, and we're, we're adding to it, you know. We're, we keep adding a little bit as we go. So from 2021 at a 2.1 to 
2023, the most recent one we just took, we're at a 2.4 organic matter. So we're gaining a lot of ground by using a systematic approach, and we're combining all of these things together to break it down and get more and more organic matter in our soils. Um, I, I don't know if it's something that we've tripped upon, um, whether we're being smarter, uh, farming a little bit different, um, but all of this seems like it has synergy with each other. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not one thing. And that's kind of something Brian talked about here too, that uh, there's a lot of things you got to do right uh, to, to get things moving in the right direction in terms of soil health and, and just supporting all the soil life in your, in your soils. And you mentioned several different things here from cover crops to just how you're managing things with uh, biological type products to, to humix and fulvix, uh, sugar, those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this temple. Really appreciate the data. I think that's that's fantastic. And it's awesome to be able to have some of those data points to, to really encourage you on your own farm of, hey, we're doing things and it's taking us in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 working out really well. So, uh, you know, where those nine or ten years where, you know, we start paying attention to our organic matter, we like saw very little change until we started putting some of this other stuff together. And now with the technology and the, some of the things that we're all doing, um, we're starting to learn that the health of that soil is going to build organic matter all on its own by building better roots. All of these things that we're putting into play, you know, is is part of this, you know, let's take MegaGrow, for example. You know, we've been using MegaGrow for years, and we're building a massive root system, adding in the humix and the sugars in the furrow along with it. So is part of that, this is a question I have, is part of that, is that adding to more to my soil health because of the roots that I have and building more organic matter? Is, is that part of it? You bet. We talk a lot about planting crops with massive roots and anything you can do to make bigger roots is great because now you've got all those channels and I don't want to steal too much Thunder Temple. You were just feeding in. Our, our next guest is, is uh, a farmer in South Dakota who really has been leading the charge on a lot of these things. And I, I don't want to steal too much of Brian Jorgensen's thunder, but he's going to he's gonna eat this stuff up, Temple. He, I don't know if he needs any more things to get him fired up here. Uh, but okay, it's, it's, well, maybe we help that. <laughs> That's exactly what he's going to get into. Uh, but, yeah, you are absolutely on the right track, Temple. Hey, Temple, thanks for joining us. If you, if you want to hang on and just listen, uh, you're, you're going to love hearing Brian Jorgensen here in just a I'd second. I'd love to listen. You bet. Th wait. Thanks, Temple. We really appreciate it. All right, Brian. I think he, I think he sufficiently gave you a good start here. We're talking to Brian <laughs> Jorgensen here in South Dakota, and I, I, you probably recognize that name. You've seen him in a lot of publications. Their, their families won a number of awards. Just do a fantastic job farming in a, a tough area of the country, too, and, and integrating that production with livestock, too. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys today? Well, good. I, I just Temple just started throwing things out. I'm like, oh man, Brian doesn't need any more yeah. fuel for this fire. He's he's in my choir, man. I'm, I'm telling you, <laughs> he's, he's 
He's preaching good. He's doing a good job. Hey, he he mentioned a couple things, and and it's interesting. Now, Grant, a much different environment in Maryland than what you're facing in in South Dakota. But uh, you mentioned how they got cover crops in in the system, and it was making a change. It was helping the farm, uh, but now doing some other things uh, right or improving some other things here. Really focusing on uh, soil life has really sped that process up. What what have you seen on your farm? Well, there's no question. You know, we've we've been long-term no-till uh, since the mid-'80s, uh, 100% no-till since 91. You know, and that in itself has probably driven our organic matters up over time more than anything. But within that, when, it, when you start doing those kinds of things, you inherently start building better biology, and that is the absolute key factor. And so along with that, in the mid-'90s, we started adding biostimulants, enzyme catalysts, humics, sugars, and we're still doing those things today. Uh, those technologies are just getting better and better every day, uh, and they're affordable. And so we're not afraid to use those technologies. Cover crops obviously had a huge influence. And I look back in our soil tests, you know, going back into the mid-'90s, and when we implemented cover crops into that system, in other words, extending that living root for a longer period of time and building more biomass on that soil surface, and in the, in, the, in the substructure as well with roots, our organic matter started to climb even quicker. So to give you an example, 2010 farmer average, we were like 3.5. Uh, 2020, it peaked out at 4.9. And that's farm-wide on 12,000 acres. So that's to me, is in, in western South Dakota now, that's a testament to what root systems and residue management can do for you. Now, What's really intriguing to me is that we are crop removal people. We feed a lot of livestock, so we have to remove a lot of that carbon, which that's, that's problematic. But as long as you've got a, a good biological system and you're good with putting cover crops back to feed that system, you're going to be just fine. And also incorporating livestock and getting those cattle out to graze. That's, that's probably driven our organic matters quicker than anything else we did is putting livestock out there in the summertime or in the fall. Yeah, you've defied a lot of odds, and that, that was one of them I wanted to touch on. That just if, if you're feeding all this and people say, oh, no, you can't take it off, you need to leave it out there, well, no, uh, it can be done, and it's, it's just building that engine underneath it in the soil with all those living things to, to keep supporting the system. Absolutely. I mean, I look at, I've always looked at organic matter as the fuel tank. You know, the bigger the tank, the bigger the jet's going to be or the bigger the engine's going to be. And so as long as there's fuel in that fuel tank, you're going to grow that biological system. That's how biology functions. It, it, all it does, it's, it's born and raised to propagate, and it doubles, triples, quadruples exponentially very quickly as long as there's a system in place and an environment in place to let it happen. Over-fertilization, uh, lack of residues, uh, a lot of toxicity in the system, imbalances in the chemistry of the soil. All of those can inhibit that growth. But once you get those things kind of balanced, things will just explode really, really quickly. Well, it's it's certainly been a testament to that, just seeing what you've been doing on your farm and ranch, Brian. Uh, we're talking with Brian Jorgensen here again in, in South Dakota. Brian, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on, and uh, and good luck to you heading into the spring. Bring us some sunshine, man. We need to get some field work done. <laughs> yes, I hope so. We need to melt some snow over here, too. So sunshine's always good. Now stay tuned. We'll be right back. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. 
with three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab. It's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, you're getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. From the smallest fastener to the trusses overhead, Morton leaves absolutely no detail to chance. It's how we ensure that your building stands the test of time. From concept to completion, we take pride in providing a high-quality building to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. It's an exciting topic. We're discussing increasing organic matter in the soil and uh, to hear from our first couple of guests that we've had just some fantastic work they've been able to do in not the easiest places to farm. Uh, it's really important to focus on soil life and soil health as you're trying to build things. And I, I loved uh, Brian's, uh, Brian Jorgensen's comment there that organic matter is the fuel tank to grow this whole biological system that as we can, can build that up, it allows us to make big changes and big improvements in our fields. Uh, let's head uh, a little further north, get our friend Kellen Huber up in Saskatchewan to talk a little bit about organic matter and, and some other things going on in the soil. Kellen, how are you doing? 
I'm doing really good. How are you guys today? Well, I'm happy to be back in studio when you're on. I think the last time you were on, uh, Brian was here and and he got to chat with you, and I totally missed it. I just got to listen. So, kind of kind of good to be back as part of that conversation. And uh, I know soils are different where you're at too. And and again, not the easiest place to grow crops up in Saskatchewan, but uh, but you're doing a pretty nice job with stuff that that you're doing, and and also with some of the growers that you're working with. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this about organic matter. What what do you normally see in your area? and and what are guys striving for well yeah growing up here in saskatchewan is really tough because we only have 90 days of frost-free soils give or take depending on how the climates were so trying to keep soil activity is always a challenge trying to build up roots trying to get things going but one of the biggest problems we're having up here uh darren is compaction we're really having an issue with compaction. Now, we've been part of the no-till industry for a long period of time, and I'm one of those guys that talks about strategic tillage. And what does that mean? No, we're not going to go out every day and do a bunch of tillage, and we're not going to do recreational tillage. We're going to go out and fix a problem. And where we've gone out and done strategic tillage, we've actually seen organic matter increase because there's been so much of a bulk density soil is so compacted root zones just don't have a chance to grow. And as you guys talked about earlier, root zones and just straight roots, like uh, Brian was mentioning corn, you know, five times the amounts of root matter versus what a soybean has. Well, we grow a lot of lentils and they're a very shallow plant and their root growth is actually probably no more than about, uh, let's be generous and say a six inch circle. So that root mass is very thin and it's only at two inches down. So it's really subject to a lot of problems. So root growth becomes a bit of an issue. So we're really trying to get that soil loosened up. And as you and I have talked about, you know, quite a few times porosity in the soil building organic matter and understanding what that organic material can do for you. So those are some of the challenges that we've been looking at. Yeah. The compaction issue is real and uh, you're right. Sometimes we need to do something about that to fix it. And then uh, obviously going forward, uh, and I know some of the long-term no-till folks will talk about it too, that uh, once you get that system rolling and then, you know, obviously you're smart about when you're out in the field and when you're not, uh, you can manage that yep. system pretty well. Yeah, and trying to take and, um, you know, understand live roots. And I've done a lot of research in the last four, five, six years about organic matter. Uh, soil tests will come back and they'll say you got four, five, six percent organic matter. But I've actually went out and done some testing and did a total organic carbon organic matter test. And I usually find that in some situations, I have less than a third of live organic matter. And when I'm saying live organic matter, that's water, re- water holding capacity, nutrient holding, and just uh, overall available roots and structures. So, but in some situations, I get there, well, I'll have low organic matter, like I'll have a 2 3% organic matter, but then I'll do, an or- an, again, a, a total organic matter carbon and we'll actually have four or five percent of living matter 
that's there. So organic matter to me, I, I really like to do testing more on it than I'd really love to grow corn up here. Just would love to do that just to get some things going. Hey, talk to me a little bit about the, the soil chemistry side of this too. Now, when you talk about compaction, uh, what what are some of the soil chemistry things that you're working on? Is this building up more calcium in your soil? Is that part of the problem? Is it excessive magnesium? Uh, anything like that, that that growers could also try and address? Yes, and I'm glad you asked that question, Darren, because this in the last four years, I've been really working a lot more with calcium to create that porosity. So when that is happening, we're trying to get the – Ideal, 45% minerals, 5% organic matter, 25% water, 25% air. That's the ideal soil structure. We can never get there, but we love trying. You know, you got to have a goal. Got to have a goal. So working with calcium, I'm doing a lot of work with calcium, and that's mostly this discussion in the last uh, three and a half months here is how are we going to create more porosity in the soil because we want to get that root growth growing. So, A, if you've been no-tilling for a long period of time and we take a compaction tester out there and we're over 300 PSI in the soil profile and that would be 0 to 6 or 6 to 12, we've got to introduce some strategic tillage. So once we get that porosity there, get that soil that's uh, vibrant where roots can really excel, water holding capability, you're going to see tremendous more roots. So calcium is a big part of our discussion here because magnesium – you guys got high magnesium, but I think we're the kings on high magnesium because we got stuff here where we got CEC soils anywhere between 28 and 60, and we'll have magnesium levels as high. Well, there's a lot of 40-40s up here, 40 calcium, 40 magnesium. So you talk tough. about tough soil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is, that yeah. is for so sure. It's, there's a lot of challenges that we have and we're trying to find that mix that works for everybody. So that, cause at the end of the day, we're trying to get nutrient availability, but we're also trying to get that grower to have an ROI. We don't want them to waste any nutrients. So again, as Temple talks about incorporation of calcium, incorporation of humic, fulvic, uh, biostimulants, um, been doing a bunch of microbiology stuff this year. And we're just seeing tremendous successes in that. So that's all awesome. great factors, but we're we're up here in the Great White North, so we gotta you know we gotta be exponential up here. Yeah, you mentioned you know just the desire to raise some some other crops as well, and and I love raising corn. That's that's one of my favorite crops to grow. But uh, and you mentioned using lentils. Uh, I know you've talked canola. Uh, what do you find yeah. in terms of a big root system? And I, I thought that was kind of an interesting comment that, that uh, Temple had made earlier. I know uh, Brian Jorgensen talks about that too, just uh, with what they're doing with cover crops and those types of things and trying to have these roots there as, uh, you know, living material to support all the, the biological things going on in the soil. Uh, what do you have for other crops that, that could help this? Well, sunflowers used to be a big crop here years ago, but sclerotinia kind of took that out of play, and that was kind of our biggest root system. After that, we have canola. It does have a good taproot system, and it does have a lot of microfloria that will take and come off or, you know, branches coming off the sides. 
then we got our wheat and, of course, our cereals and, and some legumes. But, you know, maybe some of the pea roots have been a good, solid uh, advancement in, in uh, organic matter. But getting a, getting a good fibrous corn or sunflowers back in the market, I think, is definitely the answer. And then corn being a high magnesium user, we can actually get that uh, kind of kill two birds with one stone on that idea. Yeah, but it's, it's as a, far as other crops, you know, flax and everything. We have flax, canola, uh, cereals, of course, different oil seeds, but they're mostly small roots. Small yeah, roots. And in that, that 40 40 soil, like you say, 40% calcium, 40 mag, it's pretty unforgiving. No, no doubt about that. We're talking with Kellen Huber here up in Saskatchewan. Kellen, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. I always love having you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Talking about organic matter and building up soils on today's program and taking your calls and questions too. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. When you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. So call Farm Shop MFG today at 712-520-6051. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. You won't want to miss this year's Ag PhD Field Day with guided tours of our extensive research plots, world premieres of the latest ag technologies, the highest yielding farmers on the planet, and more equipment running than ever before. The Ag PhD Field Day just keeps getting bigger and better. We'll also have great family entertainment, including a kids area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and food and drink available all throughout the day. But the best part is everything's free. Go to agphd.com to learn more for the Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 27th. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. This is Mike. Hey. He's getting a quick haircut at the local barber school. It's only five bucks. How bad can it? Oh! Yikes. Don't be like Mike when it comes to weed control. 
Get the job done right the first time and plan ahead with Status Herbicide. It delivers elite corn safety and reliable performance, so you don't have to deal with more problems than you bargained for. No, 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 no. Status Herbicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD for your agronomic questions or if you'd like to continue this discussion about organic matter or, or anything else going on on your farm. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. And when we dive into those emails, we call that the Ag PhD Mailbag Time. It's now Mailbag Time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, I uh, get a split uh, on a pivot here to talk to you about. And so you can see what soil sample numbers are on the right side. It basically starts uh, higher than sample number 32 uh, is on the west side of that that pivot. And that's where Randy is seeing some issues down in Nebraska. He said, hey, guys, uh, for the last several years, I've seen declining yields on the west side of this farm. Now, I grid soil sample my farms every four years, so I've got new samples here. Uh, All fertilizer and lime is applied based on sample results. The farm had lime applied after samples were taken last fall. I rotate chicken litter applications every four years, uh, but about 15 years ago, the west half had tile installed on the west border to stop water seepage from the ditch. About seven years ago, I pattern tiled the west half of the farm at 90-foot spacings and eliminated the water problems. But I'm, I'm really struggling. Why is that west half still having issues? So it's been a while since he had the, the water issues over there, seven years. Uh, but he had a ditch that was seeping into the field off that west side of the field for who knows how long. Yeah, my, I mean, my, my problem here is I've got 32 samples on the one All right, and so, so here's 46 this. on the other. So I don't know what the averages are. I mean, it'd take me Yeah, here's a here's a little summary that I have. That. The west side, so just look at samples 33 and up roughly, yep. significantly higher pH. Calcium's higher, oh. magnesium's higher, cation exchange capacity is higher on that west half. Yep. And the other thing is there's no test there. With all those soil samples, there's no test for sodium Ooh. or for salt. Ooh. And I'm just wondering with that water that came in, yep. uh, you know, the base saturation, calcium doesn't really look that much different. So mm-hmm. it might be in line for as heavy a ground as that is on that west side. But I'm just wondering if we had some salt come in no, or some sodium. it's not. I can see it now that you brought that up. The magnesium percentage is really high. Yeah, I, magnesium's I mean, higher. Oh and, my gosh! Yeah, you're at on average, it's and really twenty five to thirty. The P and K seem to be side. fairly similar. I mean, they're a little variable throughout, but uh, roughly the same. Yeah, but on the east side, you're down to probably average of 20 percent, eighteen, somewhere in on there. Mag. Yeah, on magnesium. So there you go. I, I mean, that's that, that's the main cause of it. So how do you flush the magnesium out? Well, we got sulfur. tile. We got tile right. on that side. Have, as long as you have tile, then now, you I don't know about the ninety. I don't know about the ninety foot go. spacings. If that's going to be enough with Ooh. that thirty CEC soils, it's I, not. That's not even close. You need to be down to, our, to around thirty foot spacings at a thirty CEC. So yeah, it, that's that's not enough tile. 
I, I mean, we understand it's pattern tiled, but you could certainly add some more lines in there. And I wouldn't say it's 30 CEC, Darren. I'd say it's 35 CEC. That's super heavy ground. And when we get to that super heavy ground, we're usually down to 25, 30 foot spacings. So, yep, you need more tile and sulfur, and you can flush some of that magnesium out over time. You could also just go gypsum, and then that will add more calcium, push the magnesium just a little bit lower percentage-wise, plus you got the sulfur to help flush the magnesium out. Because uh, your calcium levels are, I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not super high right now. So one way or the other, either you add more calcium, you try to subtract out the magnesium by flushing it out with sulfur, that that would absolutely help. So again, I, I apologize because I, I, I can't that quickly get you summaries on everything else. I don't see anything else that dramatically stands out at first glance here. However, let's put it this way. When we look at just your overall soil test, Darren already mentioned we don't have a sodium test. We don't have a salt test. I also don't see boron, copper... Uh, manganese, iron. There is a zinc test here, and your zinc levels are, are really low. So, I mean, your whole field needs zinc. So, I mean, there there certainly are some other balance things you can do, and that will help you out as well. And, I mean, this is part of the reason why in some of these areas, some of the soil pH is off. I mean, you've got some high pHs. You also have some really low pHs. So you're down to 5.3 pH, I think, is the lowest that I see on the on that west side. And that's got to get fixed. you got to get a little bit of lime out there. On the east side, you got a little bit of that going on, too. you got a 5.2, I see, is the lowest there. So make sure that you're you're hitting those spots. So let's let's put it this way. It's awesome that in this field you have, it looks like, 78, 79 tests. Now it's time to fertilize 79 different ways. And you might say, oh my gosh, how in the world am I ever going to do that? It's not very difficult at all. There are all kinds of software programs out there that can utilize this data and then give you variable rate application maps. We've been doing it on our farm for 10, 15 years now. It's fantastic. So basically, you spend the money where you need to, you save the money where you don't need to spend it. All right. Hey, since... Let's see. It was uh, Kellen Huber that was just talking about the 40-40 soils, 40% calcium, 40% magnesium. So when he mentioned that, Darren, I was just going to tell you, I looked up on some of our old soil test results from 10 years ago, fall of 2013, and uh, the field we call Helen's. Uh, it's a super wet field, or was, until we got it tiled just a couple years before that. 46.8% magnesium was the highest I saw out there, and 50.7% calcium. I didn't get a chance, but I was going to pull up. Uh, well, we a, after we answer this next question, I'll pull up what that, that soil is now because we've been working on that over the last 10 years. Yep, takes a little time, takes some investment, no doubt about that. But you got to have great samples to start with to, to let you know which direction to go. All right, here's a little simpler question. This one comes in from Edward. Uh, he said, all right, guys. Uh, I appreciate your information, but we're planting sweet corn, and I'm wondering about seeding depth. I've felt that sweet corn has been much less vigorous than field corn, but I'd like to plant at two inches deep. What do you think about planting sweet corn two inches deep? What would be the watchouts or concerns? Yeah, that's the depth you want to plant it at. So I'm not concerned about that at all. 
to your point though it's not as vigorous just flat out so how you help that along is with some biologicals we use a number of different things on our own farm and you make sure that you've got really good fungicide insecticide all that kind of stuff a lot of times sweet corns are sold by let's call it not the name brand big seed corn companies it's some other companies that may or may not use the very best combination of fungicides and insecticides. And I'm not bad-mouthing anybody. Maybe your stuff you've been getting is fantastic. I don't know, but I would at least be asking that question, what am I getting for seed treatment here? Otherwise, you got to add some. And beyond that, you want to have a good seed bed. So you want it to be dry, you want it to be warm, and then you're going to be in better shape. Also, when you're getting the sweet corn, you could send it in for analysis, send a little sample in for analysis and find out what the cold germination percentage is. If the cold germination percentage is low, that means you got to plant your corn when it's warm and the warm germination tests, just so you know, are run at 77 degrees. Your soil temp won't hit 77 degrees, like for us, it won't hit 77 degrees on average until about the 4th of July. Well, I'd like to plant my sweet corn well before the 4th of July. So that's where having all these other things really comes in handy, the biologicals, the fungicide, insecticide, all that kind of stuff. All right. Thanks for the question. Uh, okay. Got this one from Dave. He said, guys, I uh, misfigured and I over-purchased Megagrow. I bought too much. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, I was going to put it on, on soybeans and, and put it on with a Roundup application. Could I also use it with the planter or is there is there an opportunity to use it multiple times in the same season? Or should I just save it for next year? Yeah, you can you can use it many different ways. You can put it in furrow. You can use it foliar. Uh, just you, don't you put can, it on twice within three, three weeks, weeks or so. Yeah, so you can put it on twice, but you want about a three-week gap because it's plant growth hormones. And it's like anything else in nature, any animal, any human, any plant, if you overdo it on plant growth hormones, especially in a small window, um, that could have some detrimental effects. So keep it at least three weeks apart if you go twice. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay tuned. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. Sand the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car. Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. Get what you spray for. Results. Get the lasting control more corn growers trust with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Apply pre-plant, pre-emergence, or early post-emergence to control tough broadleaf weeds and grasses before they cost you. For superior control with a low use rate and long residual, make the easy, high-performing choice. Visit anthemmax.ag.fmc.com to get results. Always read and follow all label directions. At Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. 
It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Your crop deserves the best, not just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 Flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a Champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash uscrop. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, and you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. That's exactly what David did. He's down in central Kansas. He sent some soil samples up, but he mainly wants to talk about the very top one, Brian. Uh, David said, guys, I've got a really tight, hard soil. Uh, I get it. We've been dry the last three or four years, but even in the years there's good moisture, that soil is tight and hard in that top field on on my samples. So I'm kind of curious. Here's what we've been doing. We've been no-tilling for about six years. We rotate wheat, milo, then soybeans, and then we repeat. Uh, And I'm just curious, is there anything you see there that's out of balance or any suggestions of how I could loosen up that field? Okay. So first of all, 17 cation exchange capacity. We'd call that a medium textured soil. It's 19% magnesium, and that's the reason why it's tight. You're only at 65% calcium. So if it's me, I'm putting some gypsum out there. I'm going to change my ratio just a little bit. Now, 19% magnesium is not that bad. We have a lot of soils with 19% magnesium that are fairly soft, but they have a little bit more calcium than that. Yeah, significantly higher magnesium than his other fields that he's got. Yes. I mean, he's got a lot that are down in the 10, 12% range, which is about ideal. Now, we also will often talk about sodium being a problem. You don't have a sodium issue there. There is another field, though, where you've got 2.6% sodium. So I'm going to start to get concerned about that being an issue there. But in this particular field, it's 0.5%. Now, beyond that, I would just say, let's try to get the other nutrients in balance. And the more you get everything in balance, the better crop you're able to raise, and then the softer that soil will get because you get a lot more root mass and organic matter, like our topic, like what was our topic today. So uh, let's talk specifically about what else you're short on. Like in that field, you're only at 22 parts per million on P1 phosphorus. That's the lowest level on your entire farm in all the tests you sent us. You need a little more phosphorus. Your potassium is actually good. Your 6.7% base saturation case, so you don't need to spend money there, but you do need to spend money on sulfur, zinc, manganese, iron. Well, maybe not iron, but 
copper for sure and boron for sure. So sulfur, zinc, copper, boron for sure. Probably a little bit of manganese as well. So my point is you got some nutrient deficiencies there and your phosphorus isn't horrible, but your K is good. Most people get all these recommendations saying, yep, it's NPK, NPK, NPK. Well, I don't need you to spend any money on K. Take your your potassium dollars this year, put it into sulfur, zinc, copper, boron, and maybe a little manganese, and you'll end up with more yield, softer soil, and things will be better. But the big thing, if you want softer soil, from the way it looks to me, add a little gypsum out there. All right, thanks for the question. Uh, okay, got a compost sample as well as some soil samples here, and this is from Dylan down in New Mexico. Uh, Dylan says, okay, guys, uh, got back Midwest Lab soil test results and their recommendations. Uh, I'm living down in New Mexico here, and on my farm I'd consider it a sandy loam. We've got an average rainfall of 12 to maybe 15 inches. Currently, we've got winter wheat growing, and we plan to do some sorghum Sudan grass this summer. Just curious what you would recommend to add for fertilizer to the wheat or put down before the Sudan. Uh, what major concerns would you address? And then also, I've got uh, compost here. Just kind of curious if that could work. And certainly, there's plenty of commercial fertilizer available, too. Yeah, so what Midwest Labs has is about what we would tell you, that you're short on nitrogen, phosphorus, magnesium in some areas, sulfur, zinc, manganese, and on copper, and quite frankly, boron too. So here's the thing. He, his, he, and he said his type of soil, and he included the word sand. Eight cation exchange capacity up to about 14. So that's light to medium textured soil. Uh, potassium levels aren't too bad. I mean, base saturation K, you're 4 to 7, almost 8%. But again, it's lighter to medium soil. So that means we're only at, in the 200s and parts per million of potassium. So it's not like super high, but you don't have to spend much money on K. And uh, Midwest Labs doesn't even have a recommendation for you on K. I probably wouldn't do anything either. But your phosphorus, you're in single digits. Your sulfur, you're in single digits. Your zinc, copper, boron, you're less than one. And your manganese, you're at two parts per million. Even your iron, you're four parts per million. I might even be trying a little bit of iron out there. So you need something. And what we're dealing with here is high pH soil. And you might say, well, how is my soil pH so high? I don't have crazy high magnesium or sodium like a lot of these people do. Well, your calcium levels are really high. You're as high as 90% calcium in the soil. Now, the parts per million aren't aren't terrible or anything, but you just want to get everything in balance. Get the magnesium levels up to at least 12, but preferably in light soil, we'd like to see it even 15% or higher. And you want to get the sulfur up, the zinc up, the manganese, iron, copper, boron, phosphorus. You do all these things, start getting stuff in balance over the next couple of years here, and you're going to find that that soil pH will almost certainly start coming down. So I guess I don't really have a whole lot different for you other than what Midwest Labs said, other than if it's me, I'm probably going to put copper everywhere, I'm going to put boron everywhere, and I might even try a little bit of iron because all those things are low. All right. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Um, Get, get this one in from Jason, and this is a forage analysis here. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm curious, guys, if I could utilize this forage sample kind of like you do a tissue analysis. 
Uh, is it accurate to use this uh, as we're balancing our dairy rations to kind of evaluate how the plants were performing in the field? Just just wonder what you think. This is alfalfa haylage, and the sample does have all the the minerals that, that were out there in the crop. Just curious what you think. Oh, boy. Looking at um, a lot of those, those numbers look really similar to plant tissue test levels that we see. So that, that didn't surprise me, some of the levels of where things were at. Uh, so, yeah, you could kind of do some comparison of one field versus the next if you're seeing higher levels of whatever calcium coming in or micronutrients or something like that um, and, and just compare because really all plant tissue test is is just, hey, on this day, Here's what was in those plants. Right. So, no, we don't normally look at it this way. Uh, uh, I, I just say this. If when you're feeding livestock, you start to have issues with, hey, I'm really short on whatever nutrient it is. I need a supplement. Okay, that can a lot of times be traced back to your field, and you can say, all right, what are my levels in the field? Can I boost those in the field? A lot of times you can boost the levels in the field and then get them in the plant, and then get them into the animal less expensively than adding all these supplements. Plus, a lot of times, if you get things balanced out better out in the field, you have more yield overall as well. But yeah, just looking at this real quick, can I see, oh, there's, it looks to me like you got a copper problem out in the field. I, I, I don't really know, because we haven't really studied it much on this end. We've studied it on the soil's end and seeing how that translates to yield, how it translates to tonnage in silage, for example, and things like that. So we really like looking at the soil test. But again, if you're having issues with anything in your livestock, then I would start to turn it around and say, all right, let's look closer at our soil tests and see if we can supplement there. Hey, Darren, earlier in the show, we were talking about that field that we had tests as high as 46% magnesium. We still have a couple spots that are as high as 40% magnesium. Now, we're getting tremendous yield there, and we've been doing some things to try to get the magnesium down over time. We've been uh, adding sulfur and just making a number of changes out to this field. We got tile in the ground about 10 years ago, but it's a very, very, very slow process, and that's what we say to people all the time. You're not going to flip a switch and take a 46% magnesium soil down to 12% like we would like in heavy soil. But if you start the process, you get started working on these things, your yields can be dramatically better. And we have had much, much, much better yields now here in the last few years on that particular field. But we still have a little ways to go. Now, with almost anything, if I really wanted to fix it overnight, could I do that? Yes, of course I could. But in the meantime, I'd like to make some money. And I'm trying to always figure out, okay, how much do I, how, how far do we need to push this? Is it really that big a factor in yield? It's a factor in yield, but it's not necessarily the biggest factor. So what we usually talk about is let's fix every other nutrient first, then worry about this calcium magnesium percentage thing, as long as your soil pH is about right. In other words, if you've got a 4.7 pH, well, obviously you got to get lime out there, get the calcium up and get that taken care of. But if your pH is fine, then I'm way more worried about fixing all the other nutrients first, and then eventually, and over time, we'll try to fix the high magnesium. Thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.